0: Welcome to Simply PM&R, a Mayo Talks production, the simple solution for PM&R healthcare professionals who want to keep up while on the go. I'm your host, Dr. Jeff Bro, a physiatrist in the PM&R department at Mayo Clinic. Every year in the United States, 12,000 individuals have a spinal cord injury resulting in tetraplegia, from motor vehicle accidents, falls, violence, infection, and tumors these individuals often have devastating functional loss. In a study when asked, many of these individuals described that improving function of their upper extremity and hand is their primary goal of treatment. Often, upper extremity reconstruction surgery can improve functional use of the arms and hands, but many of us as rehabilitation specialists know very little about these surgeries. Today, we are joined by Dr. Peter Ree a hand-fellowship-trained orthopedic surgeon here at the Mayo Clinic who performs these functionally-altering surgeries. Dr. Ree, thanks for joining
1: us. Thank you for inviting me.
0: So what are the benefits of upper extremity reconstruction surgeries?
1: Well, I guess if I were to ask you, you woke up, could use your arms. That afternoon, you couldn't use your arms anymore. That would be devastating. Um, With the type of surgeries that we do, it gives you basic um, functions back to your arm, if, if, you ha- if you're a good candidate for it, um, to hopefully let you do basic activities like feeding yourself, uh, grabbing a pen, even catheterizing yourself, so quite a bit that you can uh, obtain to regain in- independence. I think that's the biggest thing, independence and improving your quality of life.
0: What are some of the reasons that patients do not undergo this type of surgery? It sounds almost too good to be true.
1: It, it's funny because even about a decade ago, um, I didn't even know that there was much that you could do for this patient population. Um, I think it's partly because surgeons don't know that they can do it. Um, in turn, then people that refer them to sur- surgeons don't know that it's even available. And even if patients are aware and they see a hand surgeon, it's sometimes hard uh, for patients to say, you know, I've recovered from my spinal cord injury a year ago. I'm moving on with my life. Now I need to take a step back uh, to have a surgery and have re- rehabilitation, which it's hard to see that you could take one step back for three steps forward. But that's a, really hard for patients to understand.
0: Mm-hmm. So what are some of these surgical treatment options?
1: Well, it's a combination of tendon transfers nerve transfers, um, and selective fusions of joints. And that just means locking a, a joint in a certain position so it's stable. Um, and um, it really just depends on the patients, what they have available in terms of donor muscles and nerves. But it's, it's essentially just a combination of those things in a collective um, procedure to get the main function of either extending the elbow out making a fist, or pinching an object.
0: You know, one thing that speaks to a collaborative group doing this is is some information you sent me in reviewing this. In a study of patients who were interested in upper extremity reconstruction surgery, they were 15.7 times less likely to have the surgery if first approached by a surgeon. So it sounds like a surgeon trying to sell a surgery, but if if it's introduced by someone else, not a surgeon, it seems to have a, a little more traction. Is that, is that true in your experience?
1: I think it just gives evidence that maybe surgeons aren't the best at communicating um, <laughs> but I, I do see from a patient standpoint that if you have some a used car salesman that's, that's trying to sell a car versus someone else saying hey I bought a car from this person and the car was super dependable and it's changed my life I think you would see it a little differently and you're right in that study at least if it was a Physiatrist, or actually even more so, another patient or a therapist, I think there was a little more, uh, the patients trusted them a little bit more and, and, and saw the option of surgery more favorably. You are definitely a new car salesman in my <laughs> eyes. Um,
0: so who, who are the members of this team? Who would, who would you consider members of this team?
1: Well, here at Mayo Clinic, when a patient comes... Um, we get him set up with a lot of different people. So, just for example, it would be first and foremost a uh, physical medicine and rehabilitation physician who specializes in spinal cord injury, and with that with that physician, a therapist that would then review everything um, in terms of, you know, cushion cushion padding for their wheelchair, splints and whatnot. If they have any neurogenic bla- bowel and bladder mm-hmm. issues, and they see a urologist. Um, a general surgeon that they need to. We have a, um, a psychiatrist that goes through um, any life social stressors that would, we would expect, a hand surgeon um, for upper extremity reconstruction, a neurosurgeon to see if they're a candidate for any type of uh, procedures for stimulating the spinal cord. So quite a bit of people.
0: Wow, it takes a village. It sure takes does. A village. That's great. So um, what is the timing of these upper extremity reconstructive surgeries? What's the best time to plan this intervention?
1: Probably the best time is um, uh, when the patient has had enough time, so we could say that there's no further chance or um, probable chance that they would have significant improvement in their in their uh, nerve recovery. So we don't want to do a surgery for someone that seems like they're a C5 C6 level injury when maybe in three months or six months, they may progress down to a C6 level. We don't want to do something that would burn a bridge Mm -hmm. if they ever recover that.
0: But do you have to do it in a certain amount of time not to lose additional?
1: There's um, probably the most important thing is as long as their joints and their muscles stay nice and loose, we can typically do something. Um, In terms of a nerve transfer, there is a little bit of a time crunch if we're trying to use nerves that were injured Um, through the spinal cord injury, then we have a somewhat arbitrary um, one-year time frame that we can try to do a nerve transfer. But if you can't do that, we still have other options.
0: Okay. You know, as a rehab specialist, we are very familiar with the Asia classification for spinal cord injury. Some of the information you sent me, what is the international classification of hand surgery in tetraplegia?
1: Well, the purpose is for you just to have uh, difficulty saying all that in one one I'm sure there's an acronym that I didn't get. (laughs) Um, Well, basically, the ASIA classification is very, very good for everyone just to cross disciplines to know exactly what the spinal cord injury is. Um, This classification that we use as hand surgeons is really to identify, based on the level of injury, Um, assuming it's a complete injury, we would know that certain muscles should not be affected. And if that's the case, that muscle, or these muscles that we've selected, um, have some redundancy in their function, meaning that we can take that muscle or the nerve and use it for a different purpose. Whereas, and if we take that muscle or nerve, the patient still has the ability to do that function. So for instance, um, there's a lot of different muscles that bend the elbow up. Mm -hmm. Um, There's one muscle that partially does that. Um, but it's a redundant muscle, and so we can use that to then power a function that the patient doesn't have. Uh, For instance, to give them back uh, the ability to pinch or to move their thumb.
0: Okay. Brachioradialis? Yes. Okay. That's the muscle. So you, my understanding is you use EMG preoperatively to identify muscles that are still firing and functioning, also surface EMG through the motion analysis lab? Right. Can you walk us through that kind of preoperatively?
1: Well, the best best thing that we have um, as physicians and surgeons is just our physical exam. But admittedly, a lot of times it can be very tough to say if a certain muscle, we're trying to see if it works or not, if it's actually firing because there can be another muscle right next to it doing the mm-hmm. same thing and it's hard to differentiate. And that's the challenge with it. The Dynamic EMG Lab that we use, it's just another tool that we have just because a muscle shows electrical activity doesn't mean it's actually a candidate right. for um, a suitable muscle or nerve transfer. So it helps us kind of paint the big picture. And that's our goal is to just look at the, the big picture and treat the patient as a whole.
0: Well, that brings up a great point. A uh, patient selection is always kind of paramount. What are some of the factors that make tetraplegia patients a good candidate for a surgery like this?
1: Well, beyond having enough time for um, nerve recovery, and let's say they've plateaued there, I think in this type of um, injury pattern, the patient really has to be on board with it. Um, because, gosh, if you had a spinal cord injury, the the amount of stress that goes in your life yeah. and depression that could come with that, the um, patient needs to be motivated and accept their injury and say, I'm ready to move forward. Because no matter what we do in surgery, if the patient doesn't do the rehab and whatnot, the outcome will not be very good. So probably most important is a patient that understands their injury is motivated to get better after surgery. And then with that, having a good social support, family, friends that will help them get by, that's probably the most important things. Aside from making sure they don't have any active infections, um, there's no other issues that would prohibit surgery.
0: Hmm. So I'm sure, you know, also that spinal cord level plays a huge part in the preoperative planning. Let's say a C7 in Asia terms, complete spinal cord, Asia A, uh, spinal cord injury patient comes to you. How do you counsel them about what the potential outcome is for surgery?
1: Well, for, for any patient that has a spinal cord injury, we think of three major tasks that can and help significantly with their quality of life and their function and that being elbow extension um, active or some sort of grasp or pinch it does not have to be active because mm-hmm. um, we can use what's called a tnidesis effect as long as they can bring their wrist up then the natural tension of the flexor tendons can allow the thumb and the fingers to grip an object But for a C7 level patient, let's say, um, they will have typically elbow flexion through their C6, and they may have some elbow extension too. So in that patient population, as long as they have two muscles that will bring their wrist up, we can do quite a bit of um, improvement in their function, and that would be to give them active grasp and active pinch, Hmm. regardless of what their wrist motion is. So it's quite powerful what we can do. Wow. Wow.
0: So decision process, you're considering a nerve transfer versus a muscle transfer. That's a pretty big difference in surgical
1: intervention, I would imagine. Absolutely. The, the procedure is, is different, but the overall goal is still the same. It's either you want to move a muscle to a different muscle that's not working and make that now functional, or we instead of using the muscle in itself, we disconnect the nerve um, that's going to a healthy muscle, and then reroute it to a muscle that's not working. So there's differences in techniques, um, but the uh, overall outcome is still the same. Now, with that said, nerve transfers right now, there's a lot of interesting work going on in various nerve transfers. Um, But here at Mayo, our philosophy is um, we don't want to offer anything that doesn't have good, strong evidence that we would recommend to our family members to say it's very reliable, we can do a tendon transfer, at least in my opinion, that as soon as the patient wakes up, they can move it. A nerve transfer, once you resplice the nerves, it still takes a couple of months to even work to get the rewiring there, and even then we don't know if it's gonna fully recover. I think the nerve transfers that we utilize, we utilize them because there's no other option. So whether we do it or not, there's, there's no tendons that we can move. So that's when we use the nerve transfers. Until more evidence comes out, we typically don't advocate nerve transfers. Any
0: uh, evidence of stem cells being used for nerve transfers or assisting with that?
1: Uh, that's, that's a great point. Um, we are actually investigating that now at Mayo <laughs> Clinic. Um, still still too early to know, but there's a lot of um, studies going on right now to see if adding nerve uh, stem cells can help with nerve recovery.
0: Interesting. Intrinsic hand reconstruction under wide-awake anesthesia. Almost seems like an oxymoron. But what is
1: it? Well, um, when a patient is asleep, we, we don't know... I guess when they're in surgery and the arm is completely anesthetized and paralyzed we don't know what the patient can actually do and so when we we reroute tendons we use our best guess to get it into the right tension let's say Mm -hmm. Um, but when a patient wakes up they may find that that tension as their muscles that are working um, uh, start to fire again we may find that we did not tension them properly and so if if later on in their recovery feel like we can fine-tune things or modify things, we try to do that with them fully awake. So we do that all under local anesthesia in the operating room so that we can actually make changes on the table, drop down the curtain or the drapes, and the patients can look at it and we'll say, why don't you try to bend your fingers or do this function and then we can actually see it, so there's no guesswork anymore. Wow. We can't do the whole surgery under Wide Awake, but for selective things, especially for fine-tuning things, we try to do it in that fashion, so we're, con- we're happy with it, and most important, the patients are happy with it.
0: I would imagine there's a significant amount of rehabilitation after these upper extremity reconstruction surgeries. When do you begin this? When do you start uh, teaching someone that what the muscle that
1: used to flex their elbow now flexes their thumb. In the past, we would cast these patients for about six weeks. So that's really tough. That was probably the biggest thing that patients had a hard time trying to swallow in terms of committing to surgery was that six month period or a six week period that you couldn't transfer anymore. Things like that. Now we've modified our surgical procedures so that what we do is strong enough so that the patients can have a protective splint while they're in the hospital. And then uh, we can allow them to still do transfers and still um, do some basic tasks, but at the same time we protect them. But the rehab starts immediately. Wow, wow. Our patients, gen- I mean, it seems like they'd be satisfied with this, are they? Yeah, they really are. You know, I think unless, unless you have had a loss of your arm for a short period of time and then, um, and then have a recovery of some function, I don't think we would ever grasp how, how beneficial the surgery is and I think that's the shame with this patient population is that so little patients have had the surgery that they can't really share with everyone else their experiences but I think once they do and we have a very good social network within our patient population they talk to each other and say hey would you recommend surgery it seems like a three month recovery um, for everything to heal maybe a long time and you know, the, my former patients will say absolutely. You know, it, it's a difference of a young mother not being able to hold their child to now being able to feed their child or someone who hasn't written with their dominant hand for 40 years and now they can actually shake someone's hand or write with that hand. I mean, it's, it can be pretty profound. Functionally life-altering.
0: We've been talking with Dr. Peter Ree, an orthopedic hand surgeon here at the Mayo Clinic. Thanks for your time, Dr. Ree. Thank you very much, Dr. Bro. Today's episode was sponsored by Mayo Clinic Online CME, offering on-demand medical education in a wide variety of specialties. This includes the Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation online board review course. Enter your boards with confidence, whether it's your first time through or for recertification. Learn on your own time and earn credit. Register today at CE dot mail dot edu slash PMR BR online